I'm John Caldera, president of Independence Institute. Former District Attorney George Brockler is the last DA to seek the death penalty for a mass murderer. I wanted his thoughts on the likely outcomes of the mass shooting perpetrators at the King Supers in Boulder and the Club Q shooter in Colorado Springs. This is the audio version of our television show, Devil's Advocate. You can watch that program by going to youtube.com and searching for our channel, IITV, which stands for Independence Institute TV, or just go to thinkfreedom.org. I hope you enjoy this discussion. Club Q shooting happened, oh my goodness, over a month ago, and we're still hearing the ramifications of it. One person I wanted to talk about the legalities of it, former DA from who knows what district. It's a big one. It doesn't exist any longer. It's been split into it, two, right? It's going to disappear on January of 2025. Yeah. If only you would too. <laughs> George Brockler. <laughs> hey, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for it. having me. All right. Not only have you seen this as, uh, as a prosecutor, of course, yep. your work for the Aurora shooting. I thought we'd talk about this because you were probably one of the last guys to prosecute a death penalty case. It wasn't successful. And now there'll never be a death penalty prosecution again. I want to go backwards in time a little bit. Given what you know now, was it still worth going after the death penalty case in, in that? What would you have done differently? Just going way back in time. Hey, listen, that. if I have to look back on this as where, uh, where the corrections in, in action, it would be during jury selection because that's where yeah. you end up losing a, a death penalty case. In terms of what we did and how we did it, there's really nothing else I could change. I would say this, of the victims that we had, and there was some that were in favor of death, some that were in favor of, of life. Those that were um, the most vociferous about not pursuing death almost to a person after the case was over, came up to me and said, you know what, thank you for going to trial. And I say that because I would not have known the details about my daughter's killer if you hadn't done this. I would not have known about the last moments of my son's life had you not done this. And I have a different kind of closure now than I think I would have had we just rushed to take a plea. That's one thing. The other thing, too, is given the time where we were at, and remember, uh, Governor Hickenlooper had just punted on Dunlap, right. who had had 17 years of post-conviction appellate review before he went, it's a hard decision, I'm going to leave it for someone else. Um, that situation, that environment that was created, had I made the decision then and there to accept the offer to plead guilty and not find out all the things that we ended up finding out through this process, who then could have ever sought the death penalty in the state of Colorado? Everybody that murdered less than 12 people and tried to murder less than 70 would say, hey, the guy in Aurora, right. that dude got life. My guy only killed five people. I mean, that's the kind of thing that would have been generated from this. You know, the, the parts that's missing now in not having the death penalty is there will never be an opportunity for someone to walk in and say what they said to me, which is take death off the table, we'll plead guilty and we'll go away. And that happens. We know that because there are people serving life sentences right now who did so because they gave up on the death penalty. We never have that chance again. So when you talk about Club Q, when you talk about the Boulder shooter, you talk about any of these mass killers, what possible incentive could they have to do anything other than say, let's have a big, bad, long trial, and then we'll fight this thing tooth and nail through the appellate process because nothing worse can happen to them through a plea of guilty than can happen to them in front of a jury. So even if, if I'm hearing you, 
even, even if they win, you still have leverage. You still have something to bargain with. And the part that really got me was, and we learn, we get details, we get to dive in. And the part that, that got me was the word closure. And it wasn't, you know, you talk about right. for the victims' families, the victims, yes, of course the families. I want to be really clear. Of course the families. Whole city oh, yeah. is victimized. As we were talking before, up in Boulder, that's the store I frequent. Yeah, you know, at least yeah. twice a week. My, my family goes there. My friends go there. Uh, people I know, you know, yeah, died there. And, um, and I want to know what in the world happened? I want to know what happened with the police response. I want to know why it took the better part of an hour to catch this guy. Amazing question. I want answers to this. And a plea deal goes, well, I still want to know what happened. I want to know why this happened. I really want to know those details. That's the kind of leverage it, it might take. Um, that's a good part of it. And I... I have mixed feelings as well on the death penalty. I understand, I understand the idea of government taking a life is a hurdle. It is something so big, I don't take it lightly. I agree and I see the arguments that so many um, anti-death penalty folks have. And I agree with them. I, I can see it. I can, I can look at it and go, yeah, I see what you're saying. But still, I don't know if I'm quite there yet. And on, I, by wiping it off the table, we miss some of the tools that we could use in these, these circumstances. Well, and the tools are for justice, John. I mean, right now, one gang member walks up to another one on a street corner in Aurora, puts a gun in his face, and pulls the trigger over a drug corner. That guy will go to prison for the rest of his life. The dude that walks into the movie theater, the dude that walks into the King Supers, the dude that walks into the Club Q did so much more evil than that guy did, and yet the most they face is the exact same sentence. It's the first crime. It's the first crime on the books where we say, no matter how many times you commit it, no matter who you do it to, no matter how you do it, don't worry. You'll never have to forfeit your life. The sentence can never be worse than number, kill one, kill a hundred. Kill an 80-year-old man, kill an infant baby. Shoot someone in the face, set them on fire and torture, doesn't matter. It all spends exactly the same in our system. That can't be justice. Let's talk about, let's talk about Club Q. This was different in that, that it, it happened, it happened uh, in Colorado Springs. It happened, it seemed to be a targeted group. It was stopped. It was stopped by some brave, brave people. It was done by, at first, at first it looked like, well, it was targeted to the LBGT uh, crowd uh, and therefore was a crime of hate until we find out that the perpetrator yeah. might have been one of those crowd. It, it almost seemed a bit like what we're facing now with what happened in Memphis. Like, wait a second, this is a racially motivated crime by people of the same race. Right. So is it a police thing? Is it a, and it, it just doesn't quite fit. Um, I'm seeing these mass shootings in all of these events, at least in Colorado, the 
perpetrator survived. Often, that's not the case, that we actually have someone to prosecute in all of these cases. And in all these cases, I wonder if they're ever going to get prosecuted. How is it that in the Aurora case, he was prosecuted? In these other cases, I don't know if they will. In Boulder, he's still not sane enough to prosecute. What makes the difference? Yeah, first, the, the observation that these mass killers are surviving more than they had historically in our memory yeah. is accurate. And really, if you go, go back to it, if you look at the Aurora Theater shooter, he was the first of that to survive by design this shooting. And now you start to see it everywhere, whether it's a Santa Fe, Texas, or you look at out in Florida at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, even Club Q. These folks are not taking the path of Klebold and Harris. These folks are not taking the path of, of the Sandy Hook killer. They want to survive this. And what's interesting is now the system seems to be finding a way to accommodate them. And, and I'm not suggesting there's any sort of corruption in the system. But there are a lot of mental health professionals out there who do not want people to end up having to face this ultimate consequence for their conduct. And they tend to lean, in my opinion, they tend to lean a little bit more towards finding incompetence because that stalls the process. Uh, and the same thing would happen with insanity. And think about it. If you get caught at the scene in body armor with guns that shot and killed people, you have one path out of forever right. in prison. Just one. And that's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And that's a card that these guys play over and over again. It would not shock me if Club Q went down that same path. One thing we won't know, but I will predict, is that the public defenders down there have already had someone to come in and shrink him inside the jail. They've already had him met with, and they've done some preliminary interviews and investigation to determine whether or not they think they have a good case here. What's interesting, if you go back to Dunlap, which is the Chuck E. Cheese shooter, what you'll remember is they tried that same path. They sent him down to Pueblo and said, he's incompetent, Judge. And what they, they had him down there for a long time. But when they sent him back, the CMHIP folks at Pueblo said, not only is he competent, he's a malingerer. That's big time sciencey words for faker. And because they made that determination, they abandoned the idea of pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. Because once you enter your mental health in front of a jury as a thing, now they get to hear that these doctors said, dude's a faker. And so they abandoned that defense entirely. Really? I never knew that one. Yep. How did you do it in the Aurora shooting? Because... This guy looked like he could cop that plea pretty easily. And that was the fear, too, is like, listen, had we not gone through the trial, too, everyone's perception would be dude that lit his hair on fire with this bright red thing that right. they mistook for the Joker uh, and had that wild look in his right. face that first day. That that guy was so clearly crazy, of course. Right. They would not have known the rest. So when we got to the point of looking at the mental health stuff that was being offered to us by the public defender's office, and I'd invited them into the office. I mean, I didn't just make some knee-jerk decision. The, the path to making the decision to seek death is really long, and it's arduous if you're going to do it right. I invited them in to make a presentation to us. Why shouldn't I seek death? I invited, invited who in? The public defenders okay. who represent them. I also invited in every prosecutor in the state of Colorado who'd ever tried a death penalty case and said, come in here and sit down and listen. Help me. Help me understand this. And the information they put out there about the mental health stuff was eye-opening a bit, but there were things they were leaving out that made me think, there's something else going on here. This is not as clear-cut as they think. So when I walked them to the elevator to let them go, I said, listen, you have my attention. You could get me there, but I want three things from you. One, I want to see every single medical record and mental health record this guy's ever generated. I want to see every one of them. They don't have to give them to me. Two, I want the notebook. 
the notebook that he sent to the doctor that got seized up and was held by the court. I want that notebook. And the third thing I want is I want to handpick a forensic psychiatrist to go in there and look under the hood and kick the tires. You give me those three things and they all come out the way you just pitched me. You got my attention. We'll get there. They didn't even say, let's talk about it. They stood right there at the elevator, looked at each other, looked at me and said, no, we're never going to give you those things. You're going to have to fight us for them. And I'm like, that's easy. So we did. And in the process of doing that, um, when they finally sent him down to CMHIP to be evaluated. CMHIP. Colorado Mental Health Institute Thank of Pueblo. You. That's it. Um, they had a doctor, a guy uh, named Dr. Metzner, super qualified in the area. And he wrote a report and came back and said, dude's mentally ill. No doubt he's mentally ill. Also, he is sane. Knows right from wrong based on societal standards and morality. And he also can form the intent to murder after deliberating on it. That's it. So once we got that report, and there were some problems with the report, so many problems that we went to the court and asked for a second one, and it unprecedented in Colorado's history, the judge, Judge Samore, now Justice Samore, ordered it. And so we had a second evaluation. And that same guy came to the same conclusion. Dude's mentally ill, but he's absolutely sane. Absolutely knows right from wrong and can form the intent to murder after deliberate. With all that stuff, then really the goal here was how do we get this in front of a jury and have a conversation with them where the easy part is what happened. Right. But the why it happened matters. And had the public defenders been successful in convincing even one of them that this guy was mentally ill, that could have hung the entire case. And I knew I was only ever going to get one shot at trying that case. But he was mentally ill. Absolutely mentally ill. But if they could get one juror to say the mental illness was sufficient, we can't say beyond a reasonable doubt that he was sane. And remember, in Colorado, if the public defender, if the defense says, I'm insane, the burden shifts entirely to the prosecution to disprove that and to prove that they're sane beyond a reasonable doubt. Other states, you have to put on clear and convincing evidence that they're insane before the prosecutor has to do anything. So the burden is incredibly high in Colorado for the prosecution. So the risk for us was, even though we were armed with these two reports, they'd gone out and handpicked their own, you know, mental health experts who, as you know, were going to say the same thing. I think some in my business, especially in Texas, would call them jukebox experts. And a jukebox expert is, you put enough coins in, you can hear any song you'd like. And that was sort of where they ended up with these experts. And so it really became a trial less about what happened and more about why it happened. Let me ask you, this this is going to border a little bit on red flags. So help me on this one. The guy you were prosecuting also saw a shrink, I believe, from um, University of Colorado. Correct. All right. So obviously, I'm assuming you guys talked to to this person. You did. There's two of them. All right. I had heard, tell me if I'm wrong, that this person talked to the campus police or the CU police and said, this guy's a danger to himself or others. It's not quite like that, but it's very close. So at, at which point, so let me yeah. load this up. Sorry. <laughs> so it seemed like it seemed like the the alarm, the you know, diggling flag yeah. of uh, a shrink says this guy is a danger to the point where a, a, a mental professional, when you trigger that to the point where a professional goes, I got to talk to law enforcement. That, that is not an easy trigger to pull, pardon the pun, that, you know, when they go, all right, I got I to gotta have law enforcement intervene. Yeah. It seems like, well, then law enforcement ought to intervene, and that's something fell down. Someone was asleep at the switch, and this could have been prevented. So I know we've got all these red flag laws and sure. all the rest, but before all that, 
there was already something in place that could have prevented this. So from my little lay position, it seemed like something broke in the system if you have a mental health professional telling a law enforcement officer or uh, yeah. doing the job saying, ethically, I've got to report this because this guy's a danger, and now, yeah. and now it's on you, and I never heard a follow-up on that. What was the story? Yeah, so this guy had gone to see a um, psychiatrist at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center, and she ultimately asked the department head uh, a guy who had actually drafted the risk protocols that were used in the Maryland hospital system. So a dude that knows his game. And remember that our shooter goes to see them, not really to be cured of anything, but he's trying to fix himself from the thing that's holding him back. Like in writing, he's witty, he, he's engaging, he's super smart, but whatever his mental illness is, he can't do this. He couldn't make eye contact with you and have a conversation. He couldn't talk to a group. And that stigma was really stunting his development in this PhD program. So he thought, I'm going to go to these doctors. They're going to give me a pill, and I'm going to be all better. And during that process, he reveals to them certain things that are concerning about homicidal ideation, but without any detail or planning or, or anything like that that would cause them to take the next step. His goal is to now stop seeing them. He realizes no pill is going to fix him. They can't do it. And he's going to plan for this mass shooting. But he doesn't want to just abruptly stop because if he does, he's afraid it will forgive the pun, cause a red flag, and they'll come looking for him. So the last day, he drops out of school. He goes to see them for his, what he thinks is his last appointment. He sits down and he says, hey, I got to quit coming because I'm going to lose my student insurance because I quit school because I'm, I'm dropping out. And he's unprepared for them to say at the time, they say, well, that's okay. You don't have to have insurance. We actually have a pot of money that we can use to continue to see people that don't have insurance. We'd love it if you would continue to come and see us. We'd love to continue to help you. He's so completely flummoxed. He sits there in silence for a moment and according to them, just stands up, walks outside the office and is gone. Now it's so abrupt and it's just so weird that Dr. Fenton, who, who's the doctor there, she has a, just a, a weird feeling based on everything that's going on. And she does something she probably shouldn't have done, which is to reveal these confidences, not about what he said, but to, that he's actually seeing them, you know, like if you think hippie yeah. stuff. So she picks up the phone and she calls the police out there at the CU police department and says, hey, this guy just walked out of my office. Can you just tell me, can you just tell me, can you run him and see, is there anything that should raise some concern for me about him? Is there anything? They run him and they're like, not a thing. Can't find a single thing on this guy. Then she calls mom. Really weird. Picks up the phone, calls mom in California. His mom. His mom. And reveals to his mom, hey, your son's seeing a shrink. Son's 24 years old. You can't really reveal, but, right. but she's that concerned is, that enough. That is against every HIPAA yeah, yeah. regulation. But she's right. concerned enough that right. she's going to scratch that itch. So she calls mom and she says, hey, you know, I'm seeing your son. Your son just quit school and he just walked out of my office. And I'm just worried. Do we have anything to be worried about? And mom, who's a nurse, breaks down in tears on the phone. And she says, no, my son has been like this since he was 12 years old. He would never hurt a fly. Wow. You know, I've worried about him his whole life. And with those two pieces of information, she hangs up the phone and thinks, wow. there's nowhere to go from here. There's no, there's no 72 oh. hour hold based on that. She has no information to act on. Police got no reason to go do anything. And, and, and you know, in the years since, when I've talked to law enforcement agencies and I tell the story, I'm like, look, never give up on the idea that you don't have to have probable cause to take action. You can do a knock and talk on nothing. You could, someone could have gone to this dude's apartment and simply knocked on the door. And when he answered it, if he answered it, they could have seen inside and said, 
what's with all the gasoline, right? Like right. what's with all the bomb making equipment? Or maybe just that act of going to the door would have caused him to re, because this dude had some paranoia, to cause him to rethink how he was going to do it. But none of that ever happens. There's just not enough information to anyone to act on. So told, even had red flag existed then, I don't think it would have been used here by anyone. That poor doctor. Oh boy. Yeah, you know, what what she's probably living with. So, and it's probably the same sort of thing a lot of cops have when you, you think about the Malcolm Gladwell book, mm. you know, and, and you you do your ten thousand hours. And you master something, yeah. and you, because you pick up these subtleties, and so you know um, whether you know the, the story in that book of the guy who shot down an enemy uh, um, plane during the Iraq War, but he wasn't sure it was an enemy plane, but he saw it on the screen yeah. and he shot it down, and but he didn't, you know, but his right. gut told him it was an enemy plane. Right. He was right. right, but you know, and so. Her gut said, there's something wrong. Something's going Same on. Same thing with a cop who, who sees a suspicious character, and he might not be able to say, That's right. but there's something about his 10,000 hours that says, this doesn't belong here. Uh, and so they've got to you know, make up something to say, well, no, it was probable cause because he was wearing this. You know? But she had that. She had that. She had a spidey sense right. for sure. All right, so she, really, legally speaking, there was nothing actionable that no. was um, red flag. But you're telling me she could have talked to a cop, the cop or a social worker or somebody else could have knocked up and say, hey, we're just worried about you. Thought we'd come by and say hi. Yep. Of course, if somebody did that to me, I, I would have I lost it. Yeah. What are you doing here? Right. And, and that could have been the risk too. They knock on the door. He never answers. Or he answers through the little chain and says, go away, I don't want to talk to you. I mean, those are all yeah. realities. But we never get to know how he would respond because nobody ever goes to the door. And with the limited information that they had, there just wasn't enough. There was no imminence. There was no imminence to him hurting himself or others. There was no planning. There were no steps that showed any more instability. Even though he had dropped out of school, he had a plan to get a job. He had just extended his lease. for. So all of these risk um, factors right. that they look at, they were like, Okay, nothing so here. So bring it to Colorado Springs. We have a similar type of thing in that the police were called on this guy for a similar type of outburst. Uh, the cops were involved, but it wasn't enough to, to put him under a 72-hour hold. And if, and if the cops put everybody under oh, yeah. a 72-hour hold that they run into, you know, They'd have to, they'd be running a, a holiday in. So, you know, did, from looking at this, and yeah. I haven't looked at it in, in, in detail, no. and I don't know if you have, did you see anything that Colorado Springs police did improperly uh, that they should have picked up on something, that there was a, that they missed the opportunity for uh, a red flag that they should have seen? No, and I say that because. They did everything, and it's the sheriff's office down there. They did everything that they were supposed to do in the situation. One, they go out, they stop it from escalating and turning into something else. They seized all of his firearms. They still possess every one of the guns they took from him back on that day. They brought him into court uh, through the process of charging him where he gets a protection order against him. That protection order typically carries with it 
the promise of not being able to possess a firearm during the pendency of that case with that protection order. They also ended up getting bond conditions, which typically carry the, you can't have any firearms while you're on bond. So they had these two overlapping things that would have triggered anybody that tried to sell them a gun to running that NCIC, CCIC background check and going, I can't sell you a gun. The red flag law could have been sought at that time. And in the front, at the front end, it doesn't make any sense. It only looks like it makes sense in the back end because when that case got flushed by the judge because of their failure to get some witnesses on board, those two things disappeared. The protection order and the bond go the way of the dodo. And without a red flag thing in place, there was nothing else. But having said that, we still don't know how this guy got those guns. And so at the end of the day, until we hear that he went to a federally licensed dealer who complied with the law and did a background check and sold him those guns, I think what we're going to find out is dude got a ghost gun from somebody illegally and got another gun from somebody illegally. If that's true, red flag is meaningless if someone's going to try to get a gun outside the system. It only works for those who are trying to do it lawfully. So was it a gun that was unregistered? Or I'm sorry, that didn't have a serial number? The way I've heard it and read about it in the paper is that one of these things was a ghost gun. Which, by the way, I hate that name. I because, do too. It, you know, it's it was one of those names of wait, when they're so good at coming up with really with, with with these these terrible names that that sound uh, uh, more deadly. People make their own gun. That's right. They, they you have a right to make your own gun. You cannot sell it. You can't give it to anybody. That's that's a crime. You can make your own gun. There's no law against that. Uh, you, you can't sell it, can't transfer it. Right. When you die, you have, it has to be destroyed. It's, it's your gun. You, you, yeah. know, you can. But ghost gun just sounds more ominous. It does. It know? does. Like, what? What are you supposed to do? It's your. No, you, right. you, you make a gun. You right. know, and and I've heard Biden say, well, you can put, you just buy the parts and you can put it together in in, in a half an hour. I will give him oh, yeah. my kid's entire college savings account if he can put together a ghost gun in a half hour. You go right ahead. Oh, uh, I mean, I yeah. look, I struggle to see him working the remote, but nonetheless. Yeah. Um, or, so, or pretty much anybody. The, it, that's true. Because it's not just the parts. That's you know, right. You, you, you actually have to do some metal working. You have, to, you have to take the frame. You cannot buy a gun frame. This is where the ignorance over guns is so amazing. You can... You can buy something like that, it's a Lego kit. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. You you can buy something that is an unfinished gun, yeah. but you still have to whittle it down, and that takes some skill. It's not a gun. Anyway, but you believe one of the guns I believe at least one of the guns was a ghost gun. And I So he either had to build a gun or, or buy get it one. from someone. Right. And that's my sense, is he probably got it from someone. He obviously had a fascination with guns. Um my guess is by the time this thing goes to preliminary hearing, which is what it's destined for, we're going to come to find out that neither one of those guns was purchased lawfully. That being the case, this is one of the great limitations of red flag is red flag only works for those who are trying to lawfully acquire a gun. If you don't care about following the law, red flag is worthless. The guy up in Boulder, the question's there. So... He comes up to Boulder. There's a King Supers close to his home. I forget where it was in Westminster or someplace. Arvada or Aurora. Arvada, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think. Arvada, yeah. Okay. And he, he comes up to Boulder. He comes up to my King Supers. Why my King Supers? We don't know. We don't know. He's, you know, 
What's different between him and this guy? We don't know. Um, and we just don't know. And we'll never know the longer he's, That's right. he's, he's, he's crazed on this. Um, if he's restored to competency, I believe we're going to get that trial. I believe. You know, what, is, what does that even mean? Restored to competency. So th there's two competing mental health pieces that go into these criminal cases. One is competency, which means even if you knew everything you were doing at the time of the crime, when you're in court, you lack the ability to understand or appreciate the process and the procedure so that you can't be helpful in your own defense. And you have a Sixth Amendment right to be helpful in your own defense. So if you can't understand the proceedings, that's incompetence. Insanity is different. Insanity is you can know absolutely everything and understand everything about going on in court, but at the time that you committed the crime, at the time that you pulled the trigger, you lack the ability to know right from wrong, or you couldn't form the the mental, the culpable mental state, the intent to murder after deliberating. If you were if you were passed out drunk during the crime, if you were uh, high as a kite, uh, you were just tripped out, and you don't remember anything, you know, the, 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 you know, the perfect uh, Hitchcock kind of movie. Yeah. I don't remember anything. Um, was, is that insanity? Is that, is that uh, no, a cop we'll, a plea? No, we'll, we'll, the way our law is structured is that voluntary intoxication is not going to be a defense to acts like first-degree murder. Now, there are things that could minimize some level of, of the culpable mental state, but voluntary intoxication is not a ticket out from that. Um, could you suffer from some sort of cocaine psychosis or something else that you got? You got multiple personality disorder. That, you got that's something different. Like that. All right. That's different. I mean, but here's the other thing. And I got caught up in this in the Aurora case. I worried that this guy had had multiple rule out differential diagnoses that involved the word schizo. And you know, from my standpoint, I'd been prosecuting for a while. Schizo, just like everybody else thinks this, is a Latin term for bat crap quite crazy, right? Like if you had a schizo peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you would say. That is a bad crap, crazy peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I worried about that. The diagnoses, they're irrelevant. The only thing that matters is, no matter what's going on between his ears, if he knows right from wrong and he can form the intent to murder after deliberating on it, that's all you need for responsibility under the criminal law. So for this guy up in Boulder, the confounding thing is we get to know zero, zero, until he gets into court. And he cannot get into court until the judge says, you're competent to proceed. Here's what's going to happen. At some point, they're going to restore this guy to competency, and he's going to be able to understand and participate in the process. All right, and again, the, again, when you say restore to competency, that's not that's not a doctor. That's a judge. And the judge says, uh, I have decided by all the medical reports yeah, right. and this and that, that you now are competent correct. to hold trial. That is a judicial that is, determination. That is, that is a... That is a judge's determination yeah. based on what he believes is the medical evidence. That's right. Okay. And I promise you, once the state hospital comes back and says he's good to go, then the defense will stand up and say, we want our own evaluation and we want the ability to question these results. This thing is far from getting underway. And until it does, we don't get to know anything about it. And it's important that we do. It's, it's interesting the juxtaposition with what took place in Memphis versus this, right? Here's a yeah. mass murder. Guy killed 10 yeah. people intentionally with guns he went and bought well in advance. We get to know nothing about that. Here's these five ridiculously off-the-rails police officers who beat a guy to death. We get the video right away. We get the body cam right away. We get charges right away. It's just an interesting juxtaposition of where we're at as a society in terms of what we'll tolerate and not tolerate in terms of oh, transparency. Let me dig on that just for a second, dig down on it. Um, so I very much want... I don't, I, I don't want to say, I want to see the video of what happened in King Supers. 
I want a detailed description. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to see what happened because I want to know what the police response was. I want to know how long it took uh, and why the police waited outside for 45 minutes mm -hmm. after the original mm -hmm. uh, uh, police officer went in and was unfortunately shot. That guy was a hero. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for, for his action. But I want to know what in the world happened. And are... Are you telling me I got to wait until a judge rules that this this man is competent to stand trial, and then his defense attorneys say no, he's not, and then they yep. bring in their own guys, and then that goes to trial? Are you telling me it's going to be eight years plus until we get this evidence out, and then finally maybe we, the people of the community, get to know what in the world happened? Can't can't the can't the police can't the DA say here is what happened here is the video here is the description here is what happened because you know this is my police department I know I feel I've got a right as a taxpaying citizen as a guy who shops in there yeah. to know what in the world happened and you also want to be able to if necessary know how to hold the police department accountable like if these yeah. guys screwed up you want to know. Uh, the short answer is no. And if I'm the prosecutor on the case, and Michael Doherty, who's the elected DA up in Boulder, he's a real prosecutor. He knows what he's doing. He is not one of these, in my opinion, woke, find a way to not prosecute. This guy's a hard charger. He tries cases. He knows that there's a rule out there of professional conduct for attorneys. And there's one specific to prosecutors that says you can't poison the well, in essence. You can't put information out in the public stream that is going to risk the due process rights of really anybody in the case in terms of having a fair trial. Michael knows that he's going to end up having to pick a jury at some point out of that community. And the more information that he puts out in front of them, not only does he run afoul of the rules, but he runs the risk that a judge then says, you know what? We can't try the case here because our ability to find a fair jury here is compromised because you put all that information out in the public stream. It, it is a real issue, by the way, too, with what we see in Memphis. That's yeah, just, real. Just, just wait yeah. a second here. Yeah. So, the Memphis Police uh, Department is getting rightfully, well, one, bashed because of yeah. the bad cops, but also rightfully, um, uh, it seems, some kudos for saying, hey, you guys stood up, you charged these guys right away, uh, you put out the, the video pretty darn quickly, not immediately, but yeah. pretty darn quickly, you arrested and charged these guys before you put out the video, yeah, um, you disbanded uh, the unit, Right. So you, there was no question about uh, waiting until the riots happened before you charge these guys. But wait a second. Uh, they killed one guy. Right. It's on video. Um, there it is. This guy killed my neighbors. These, this guy killed ten people. Of ten of my neighbors. Uh, this guy did it in the heart of my community. And I want to know what the hell happened. These guys, wait. That, they killed one person. There were five of them. Yep. They're cops. Why is it that they didn't poison the well by putting out that information? And this DA isn't poisoning the well. What, what gives? Why is it that the people of Memphis, in this case, that's not poisoning the well, but here it would be? I've got, I got questions I yep. want answered. Short answer is they are poisoning the well in Memphis. But we've made a policy decision here, a public policy decision, even the state of Colorado. If you look at that SB 217 that passed, that very anti-cop piece of legislation, one of the things that it also mandates, and the corollary 
statutes that have followed, mandates the release of body cams from these use of force cases within a certain period of time, unless there's some reason that the DA is going to go expand upon. So if I'm one of those five out there in Memphis, um, as guilty as they may be, they're rightfully going to ask the question, how in the world can I get a fair trial when you've already convicted me in the court of public opinion by releasing all that video? I don't get the chance to rebut that. I don't get the chance to say what happened. I'm stuck with this condemnation that exists. Where am I going to find 12 people who can sit fairly and judge me? That's real. But we've made a policy decision as a people here that because of, in my opinion, the post-George Floyd era with things with Elijah McClain, we've decided that it, the public's interest to know here is going to trump the risk that these people may not be able to get a fair jury, may not be able to get a fair jury. So that's why they put this stuff out there. But I'm asking for the same damn thing. I know. I'm asking because I want to know what the cops did. You know, I... I'm, I want to know why the cops waited 45 minutes. You know, so I'm interested in yep. the cops' behavior as well. Um, and so they want to see the police footage? I want to see the police footage as well. I want to hear what they were saying. It's the same thing. One was because of what the cops did. I'm curious about what the cops didn't do. No, I think that's a, I think that's a fair point. But I think that if you're the district attorney in Boulder, He's going to say, this is not the same policy consideration here. Like, I want to try this mass murderer, and I want to hold him accountable. And the risk that we run is I'm not able to do that, even if we end up answering questions about law enforcement. But the difference in Boulder is they're not necessarily the wrongdoers from the standpoint of they're not the ones that went in there and murdered 10 people. If they made mistakes procedure-wise, policy-wise, in terms of when they you say the same thing about Uvalde? First off, the, the Uvalde one is so is so awful on a lot of different levels, but they're not responsible for the trigger pulling that that monster did in the room. What they're responsible for is giving him the time to pull the trigger. That's what they're responsible for. That's a different analysis. I still can't explain Uvalde to this day. And, and I've traveled if, around the country talking about these cases. But if the police don't engage a shooter anywhere, um, then, that's, then they're guilty of giving a, a shooter trigger time. I'll add to that, now that the legislature has preempted state law uh, or stopped the preemption of state law with guns, right. and now localities are taking away um, concealed carry permit uh, issues, so more and more uh, localities are taking away concealed uh, weapons usage, you've got people who cannot protect themselves. So if you're not allowed to carry a concealed weapon, and the police are not there to, and giving yeah. more time to a shooter, wait a second, then government is, is failing you twice over. And it's interesting that here in Colorado, the places that ha these shootings have happened, I think of the New Life Church in mm -hmm. Colorado Springs, where um, Jeannie Hassam stopped a yeah. shooter. Hero. Yeah. I think about a theater uh, uh, where this happened. I think about a, a shopping center, um, King Supers. I think about Old Town, um, was it Old Town uh, Arvada? Yep. Where, um, uh, where a uh, concealed carry uh, holder saved lives. And then I think about what Boulder and so many other places have now put in bans uh, where you cannot conceal carry, including houses of worship. 
including theaters, including stores. So the places where these shootings have happened, you you cannot concealed carry. And now we see that police departments might be guilty of giving shooters more trigger time. So if the police departments, whether Uvalde or Boulder, are letting letting a shooter run rampant and city councils and city managers are stripping people of their right to defend themselves, then government is liable for people dying on both sides of this equation. And I, I find it unforgivable. There is something to be said for a government that says, look, we're going to have a monopoly on the use of lethal force. There is something to be said for that, as long as individuals retain the right to defend themselves or the others around them. But when they take that away and say, the monopoly that we have on the use of lethal force includes your ability to defend yourself, then I agree. It's a different analysis and there's a different level of responsibility that the government owes. I just don't think you can take away someone's individual right at self-defense. And I've, I, you know, I've spoken at some of these um, uh, concealed carry classes and I've provided the law on self-defense and some other things. And invariably, someone asked the question, hey, what happens if I go to the Starbucks and it has that gun-free zone thing in it and I'm still carrying concealed, you know, what should I do? And I'm like, well, you should comply with the property owner's wishes. But the only way anyone will ever know is if you're a hero or a zero, right? That's the only way. You show up to a Starbucks, something bad happens and you stop it with that gun you shouldn't have had there, you're a freaking hero. And I can't think of any DA that would end up prosecuting that case, except in Denver. (laughs) Except in Denver. but you could also be a zero. Gun falls out. I mean, there was a guy at, at a field my kids play uh, football, flag football. Some old dude's walking around, gun drops out of his pocket, and of course, like a moron, goes to pick it up and puts his finger on the trigger, and it discharges. And this guy get you're either a hero or a zero if you make that decision. My advice is follow the wishes of the property owner, but at the end of the day, you're either going to be one or the other. And I'll also add to that, you know, people have a false sense of security when they carry a gun. Oh my gosh. And they don't do their work of practicing, taking extended classes on concealed carry, working uh, yep. of how to use, when to use, how, how to um, pull a gun out, oh, yeah. when to use it. Because you can be a hero when you put yep. down the shooter. You can be a zero when you shoot uh, innocent bystander because you don't know how to to use it properly. Remember in STEM, there was a a security guard there that actually apprehended the 16-year-old transgender male. And he was not supposed to be carrying. He was only licensed to be there as an unarmed security guard, but he carried concealed anyway. And when the law enforcement comes through the side door through some pass keys that they have, he doesn't know what's going on. He's not on anybody's radios. He has a 16-year-old down here. He knows there's more shooting. He's got his gun at the ready. He sees a blonde ponytail and a rifle barrel come around the corner, and he puts two rounds at these cops, three cops, lieutenants and sergeants. They dive back. Bullets don't hit them, but the bullets go through the wall and hit two other kids. That was STEM. That's the kind of stuff that happens even with someone, and I think this guy was trained, but he wasn't supposed to be armed. Mistakes get made all the time when people are carrying guns. Which is a reason to get trained. Laura Carno, where are you? Right. Yeah. Laura Carno, who runs the FASTER program yeah. for the Independence Institute, which trains school staff right. on, on how, how to carry safely and how to engage. And not shoot kids through the wall. Right. Yeah. Predictions. Yeah. 
got the guy up in Boulder, yep. guy uh, down in Colorado Springs. You've been through this. Give us your crystal ball. I think he gets restored to competency at some point. Up in Boulder. Up, up in Boulder. And? Um, and I think he gets prosecuted, and I think he gets convicted. Um, I don't know what the mental health status of this or the report is, but I do know Michael Doherty, and I trust his judgment enough to know that if he thought that there were significant mental health issues that would have kept this guy from knowing what he was doing and knowing right from wrong, he would come up with a different resolution for this case. That is not the vibe I get from the way they're proceeding right now. In Colorado Springs, I presume they're going to make some sort of a play for mental health because they have no other cards they to being, play. They being the public defender's office. Um, there's no other cards for them to play to try to keep their guy from an eternity behind bars. Michael Allen, the DA down there, will push hard and he'll press forward and try to get this thing into court. I don't know. Well, you got to wait to see what the doctor says. I, when you see the Planned Parenthood shooter who continues to be found incompetent, the feds show up and say, we know how to do this. And then the federal judge goes, no, no, he's incompetent. And you're like, where do we go from here? Um, Why I, do the feds handle that one, not the locals? Actually, I think it is a local crime. I really do. But to the extent that there was some sort of hook for the feds to get into this thing, and maybe it was some sort of a civil rights thing because it was an abortion clinic and all that, but to the extent that the feds had a hook, once it was stalled down there with Dan May, the DA, and the judge who would, who would not find this guy competent, I like the idea that the feds could at least show up and be like, let's us take a run at this thing. And the judge had the same reports was like, no, I still think he's incompetent too. And then you're like, well, there's nowhere for us to go. I want these crimes, by the way, to be handled by the locals. These are not, same thing with Memphis. I don't want the feds involved in Memphis at all. That Why? is a local crime. What's the federal hook? This is a local crime with local cops killing a local person. What's the federal hook? Why would we want the federal government involved in this? Already you hear guys, even like Tim Scott out of South Carolina saying, this should be a call to action to legislators everywhere. Asking Congress to step in to regulate cops. I don't want Congress regulating local cops. I want us. Why? I want us regulating local cops. You have not DC. Why? Because I don't think it's Congress's business. I don't think that Article One supposes that they should be intervening here in local police and local sheriffs. I just don't think that's their business. Last question. Let me leave it at this. Whether a guy up in Boulder, guy in Colorado Springs, is two mass shooters. What difference does it make if now without a death penalty, whether they're insane or whether they're sane and go to trial? They're going to be behind bars or they're going to be out of society for the rest of their lives one way or the other, aren't they? No, because when you're found not guilty by reason of insanity, if that's what happens, um, you are only held for as long as it takes for some doctor to come in and say, this guy is no longer an imminent risk to himself or others, then you can be, re you can put back, be put back in the, look at John Hinckley Jr. That guy's not in prison forever because it was not guilty by reason of insanity. That's a real thing for us here too, to deal with. And also John Hinckley Jr. didn't kill anybody. No, but he, it, had he been found guilty of the crimes that he was uh, accused of and they had stacked up all that prison, dude would never get out of prison. But because it was insanity, the door is always ajar for him to be rehabilitated enough that he could be put back into the community. I can't imagine anybody on the planet Earth wants to see the dude from King Supers, the guy from Club Q, the guy from Aurora, ever back out in the mall with them shopping, no matter what rehabilitation they've gone through. The only way to do that is through the traditional conviction and you get sentenced thing. The not guilty by reason of insanity thing leaves too much to chance down the road. 
We don't need to worry about that with the Aurora shooter. Well, the, well, here's what we have to worry about with the Aurora shooter. There is a movement right now at the legislature to carve back something called extreme indifference murder and make it a second-class felony, which is a fixed what? number. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's coming. Um, the legislature, last year they had flirted with the idea of doing this. They already did it with felony murder. They're flirting with doing it for extreme indifference murder. Well, that dude in Aurora was convicted of 12 counts of extreme indifference murder. There are other murderers who are in prison for that and not for after intent with the, or after deliberation with intent. That's a real possibility that legislative action after the fact could undo sentences that exist now. We've seen it with the death penalty. Uh, we, saw, we saw Governor Polis commute the sentences, commute, convert the sentences of Dunlap, Sir Mario Owens, and Robert Ray to life in prison, even though he was under no legal obligation to do so. And he did it by saying, oh, standards have changed. This current legislator, legislature decided that the death penalty is no good anymore. If they do the same thing for other crimes that people are serving prison, we see it right now. They have changed sentences on cases in the rearview mirror based on changes in the legislature. So when we can say, hey, dude's serving, you know, 3,318 years in the Department of Corrections, we have nothing to worry about. Not so fast. Some well-meaning, weak-in-the-need governor two decades from now could end up looking in the rearview mirror and saying, you know what, that guy's really much more mentally ill than we thought. He's really deteriorated in prison, and we've changed the law in this way. I'm going to change his sentence. Um, it's, a, it's a hubris that this current generation has, that they think they know best what justice is based on what took place in the rearview mirror. My God, man, we have, in, we have conviction integrity units being run out of the first judicial district and other offices that will go back and look at sentences that were imposed by judges who were representing the community back in the day, 20 years ago, juries that found him guilty and say, based on our current standards, do we think that's a fair sentence? And then go and try to undo them. Give me the title of this group. Conviction Integrity Units. They're, they pop up everywhere. And their job is to go review cases from decades past and go, by today's standards, that's not that big of a deal. That's not their job, but that's what some of them do. I stood up a Conviction Integrity Unit, but the purpose of it was to say, if someone's in prison, and there's some new evidence or a new witness or something that the system couldn't consider before, and this person's not guilty of either the crime itself or the crime they were committing, come to me. I promise you I will look into it and we'll make the right call. But this is different. This is now expanded into what is our modern version of justice and how do we undo what happened in the past? What if, it, what if the guy's crime was he was a colored man who was at a white uh, Woolworths table uh, and he wouldn't leave. Um, and so he was arrested for that. And he did it too many times. And by our laws, he's, he's now serving a 20-year sentence. Uh, and that's was what the judge said. He was certainly guilty of that. And so he's serving that sentence. Um, if it's possible to conceive of such a law in the modern era, and we haven't had such a thing for, for 50, 60 years, yeah, since, yeah. Um, there's, a, there's an appellate process that can address that. But in that limited circumstance, maybe there's an opportunity there. But that's not what's happening. What's happening here is we're looking back and saying, my gosh, those guys got 96 years for two armed robberies. Today, in Denver, they'd get candy and hugs, and we'd send them out on probation. Those guys, that can't be justice. Those, those guys were selling pot. And the pot they were selling back then, by today's standards, was so weak. So weak. It was so, so weak. weak. So weak. Yeah. 
you could yeah. you could sell it by the bale and you wouldn't <laughs> right. get as high as, right. as one True. teaspoon here as an edible as yeah. an edible so come on guys don't, don't shouldn't we reconsider what we're doing if Could I'd, that be something like that yeah okay maybe but if I thought that anyone was in prison for selling marijuana I'd have a different opinion that's a that's just a myth that crack the left cocaine versus regular cocaine. We don't make the distinction here in Colorado, but the feds do. That is one where I think the disparate the, the disparate sentences are unjust. That is yeah. true. All right. That is true. This has been fascinating. I, I know you've got to go back to... One last thing. Yeah. Red flag, because we talked oh, about Oh, that's right. It. Here's what's coming. I think based on what the governor said and the legislature said, they're going to try to expand who can actually make that complaint to trigger the red flag. And the two groups they're talking about are teachers and district attorneys. And I will tell you, there's no role for the district attorney in that determination because these are things that get made in the moment. The, the people that are the first responders, they get the firstest, bestest information. They're in the position to do the evaluation. Some DA, days, weeks, months later with a case that they handle, what are they going to do? Look at that and go, man, that should have been a red flag one. They could never meet the standard. The one that horrifies me is the idea of teachers. Teachers, teachers would have sought the red flag again. I'm just certain of it based on my behavior in high school. Why put teachers in that position? Why would you do that? Teachers? Yep. And so let me see if I got this right. Teachers that teach K through 12, um, they're also, they will pass. I'm certain of this. They will pass a law saying that you can't buy a gun until you're 21. Right now, you can't buy a handgun until you're 21. You but can rifles. Buy, you can buy a rifle. Yeah. They're, they're going to bump that up. So no teacher is going to be teaching a kid that's going to be able to legally buy a gun. So are you going to hear something from the kid and then you're going to run and take away the parents' guns Ooh, good point. because you because Junior says, oh, yeah, dad's got a gun and he's really pissed off tonight. Yeah. You know, and then, and that's going to do it? It's a good or, point. or you're going to have, um, you know, um, the anti-gun teachers in Boulder who are just going to, you know, uh, go, all right, who here's parents got guns? All yeah. right, Susie and this. And, oh, Who's no. wearing the Trump <laughs> shirt? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, that, that's terrifying. Now, understand, Polis himself is not anti-gun. Polis, however, is controlled by a wacky uh, leftist legislature that he has not been able to stand up to. And so they, they want to go after guns. The compromise before this last election yeah. was give us an assault weapon ban and this ban and that ban and this ban. And he said, no, no, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll be Pontius Pilate, mm -hmm. and I will <laughs> overturn preemption. Right. So all you crazed cities can, and it's not on my watch. What, what, you, what you haters do, see, I, I, and we'll call it local control. It's not local control at all. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, can, I, can, can Lyman out there say, you can have more than 15 rounds in your magazines? No. no. So it could only be a ratchet. So now all of us are criminals again. Um, uh, and all the assault weapon bans can come and all the rest. Uh, and we'll call it local, local control. And I've never, never seen a wave of, of gun hatred like I've, I've seen now uh, in gun laws. Uh, not to be outdone, uh, more, more is coming, including oh, yeah. this latest uh, the bill yeah, to, to oh, outlaw 99% you know, of all the guns that we have here. Uh, he'll try to... to Wiggle that down and say, we're going to do an expanded um, red flag, I think is what he'll try to do. We'll see if he can stand up and um, to, to the left. Here's what I think will be fascinating. 
if by some reason the classified files keep growing and- You think Joe, Mueller says classified files? No, <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> if, if Biden, for some reason, does not run for re-election- Yeah. And Polis gets wrapped up in the race for 24. Yeah. Then the whole country becomes his constituents, and he will have to start standing up to the whack jobs on his left. And if that's the mm-hmm. case, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. If well, not, if not, he'll just continue to capitulate, and he's, that'll be that. He's already. I don't know how many governors did this, but he did that uh, press release on the Memphis shooting. And mm-hmm. while I appreciate the sentiment that hey, this is a horrible thing, and I feel for. The, what possible role can the governor from Colorado have in commenting on something that took place in Memphis, Tennessee, which I looked at a map. It's not close. It's far away from us. I don't get it other than through looking at it through a political lens. I think this left-leaning legislature has the ability to make it easier for him to look moderate because they can put some real crackpot stuff in front of him and he can look strong and veto it. The risk is obviously that he infuriates the left, but for a dude who's been a self-funder from day one for his campaigns, that's never really been an issue. I'll say for the last four years, he hasn't vetoed much that's of true. importance. That's true. He has vetoed some symbolic stuff, yeah. but on the big issues, fee after fee oh after fee gosh. after fee after fee, and the really big stuff, which is behind the scenes, his appointments mm. and the regulatory stuff his administration through his appointments have done that has been the earthquake of the change in colorado policy mm. that the outside world will not see and we won't feel for years to come just look at what the puc has done oh, yeah. what our newly empowered uh, uh, air quality control oh boy yeah. commission what waiver be, we don't need a waiver right <laughs> Uh, it's done. Uh, wait to wait to see what all of this is. Look at the uh, Oil and Gas Commission, the PUC. These, oh, my God. Um, but you have to be on the inside or in the industries to know how bad it is. It's, it's going to be fascinating. Don't you have a job to go to or something? I did until this ran over. Now yeah, I'm probably unemployed. George, always fun. Thank you, man. Thanks. Appreciate it. This is great. This is John Caldera, and if you've enjoyed this episode of Devil's Advocate, I hope you'll share it with a friend. You can listen to more episodes on all streaming services, with new ones being released weekly. And remember, this is the audio from our television show. To watch the video version, just search the letters IITV for Independence Institute TV on YouTube for this and many other great conversations. 